Guys, we're going to continue with uh, message now, continue to worship. We worship as we sing, but we also worship as we gather together around Scripture. Sometimes I have to remind myself if I'm teaching a passage, a theme, a subject that I think I've heard or I've done before, or perhaps you've heard before, uh, that it's redundant. It doesn't need to be said again, but no less than we gathering around our supper tables day by day because our bodies need the nourishment of the same kind of meal we've had before. We do the same thing spiritually when we gather together around God's Word, and so that's what we're doing this morning. Remind, reminder to you, too, after the message, immediately after the message, we'll share the Lord's Supper together. So if you haven't prepared elements for that, I'd encourage you to do so now. And with that, let me pray. We'll get into the message from there. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for your spirit. Until we see you face to face, Lord, and worship you unbounded in new bodies, in your presence, uh, thanks for the sustaining grace you give us through the fellowship we have with each other, for your Holy Spirit's presence from the truth of your word. Lord, we would just want to give you anything right now, too, that would stand between us and you that might keep us from hearing clearly from you or might prevent us, Lord, from simply offering ourselves to you again as an act of worship, thinking of Romans 12. We want to do that intentionally as we share together your word and truths you've put down to encourage us, strengthen us, build us up, make us more like Christ. Uh, Lord, prevent us from being merely religious. Might the life of Christ be enlarged in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Before, actually in ancient history, before the time of King David, who we tend to think of as the shepherd king of Israel, kings in ancient history were always seen as shepherds. It's one of the key lenses or figures or types that they were seen through. They They were a leader over people, but they were to shepherd those folks. When David was put on the throne, not just of Judah in the south in Hebron, where he'd been king for seven years, but when he was made king over all of Israel, the people said this to him in 2 Samuel 5, verse 2. They said, the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people, the people of Israel. Hundreds of years later, in the days of the prophet Ezekiel, probably around 590 B.C. or so, God addressed the religious leaders of Ezekiel's day, political leadership, right before they fell to the Babylonians and went into captivity. And he addressed them in their day as faithless shepherds. This wasn't just the king, this was the political and religious leadership. Faithless shepherds, he said, who were abusing his people. It was probably this passage that I'll read briefly out of Ezekiel 34 that Jesus was speaking to or referencing when he spoke about being the good shepherd in John chapter 10. So listen to the language and the description of God's view of faithless shepherds, those who were overseeing God's people, his flock, faithlessly. He said this, Ezekiel 34, shepherds of Israel who have been Feeding yourselves. You think of Psalm 23. Shepherds are meant to lead sheep to water and grazing and pastures and rest. They're having nothing of that. He said, should not shepherds feed the sheep? They don't don't feed the sheep. This is what they do instead. You eat the sheep. You, You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with their wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed them. The one thing you should do, you don't. Negatively, you abuse them. 
He said, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So you got this epitome of, of not only not doing the one thing you need to do, but then negatively abusing the people God meant for you to serve. In the days of the shepherds of Israel in Jesus' day, were a group of 71 leaders in Israel called the Sanhedrin. Your study sheet references this from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. This group of 71 male leaders was made up of three groups, elders, influential lay leaders, chief priests. Remember, you could have more than one living chief priest at a time, such as was the case in Jesus' day. And then teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, Primarily, they made up the Jewish Supreme Court. That is, anything religiously going on in Israel occurred under their watch. And it was this group that Jesus referred to in John 10 as thieves and robbers and hired hands when he contrasted their faithless shepherding with his faithful role as a good shepherd. He said in brief, John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The kind of shepherds God approves of, they are serving God's people. He said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. The, the model, the epitome of a faithful leader over God's people, Jesus says, is one who lays their lives down for the sheep. Now, the Sanhedrin ran the country basically under Roman occupation. So the Romans are overruling the, the country broadly, so they're collecting taxes, they're keeping peace. They're making sure they're shipping agricultural products back to Rome. But under them, the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, really is having things their way in Israel. So this is the group that opposes Jesus right from the start of his ministry, right on through his ministry years to lead him to Pilate to be crucified. And it's certainly worth asking, how did a group, and think of this, put this in your own terms, it would be like the church you go to the pastors of that church, the teachers, the Sunday school leaders, they, they not only don't embrace God, they abuse his people. For the Jews, this group was esteemed. They were looked up to. They ran the temple. They led the synagogues. And yet God says they are faithless shepherds indeed. How did that faithlessness come into being? What did that look like? Now, in the simplest terms, we would say this. They were more interested in playing God than following God. They were more determined to get what they could from God's flock than in serving God's people. With that, we're in the 56th message of the Heroes and Villains series this morning. And remember, the theme is, what does the life of Christ in me as a Christian, I've trusted Christ, I've been born again through faith in him, I have his spirit in his life, what does his life in me look like? The first lesson we said, well, it looks like faithfulness to God. This morning, we're looking looking at villainy in faithlessness from the Jewish Sanhedrin. On a timeline, this is not particularly helpful this morning. Uh, Jesus' uh, ministry years, again, about 29 to 33 AD, the Sanhedrin, of course, ruling Israel in that time frame. But that group of leadership developed after the Jews came back from the Babylonian captivity. And that lasted right into the 400s, even after Israel was destroyed Jerusalem was destroyed. It was illegal for Jews to meet there. Even this group continued in Syria until the early 400s. The main point that we want to take away from this morning is this. 
Faithfulness requires making much of Christ and his goals and little of ourselves and our personal desires. And guys, there's a real challenge on this. Uh, If we go to church regularly, we read our Bibles, we pray, we might tell ourselves that we are not susceptible to the kind of faithlessness that we'll see in the Sanhedrin. And I would just say we want to be really slow to jump to that conclusion because I think for people who want to do right, there's an easy temptation to do right for the wrong reasons, and we end up, I think, in the same place as the faithless Sanhedrin. As for this reason, our old sinful nature can be dressed up in Christian, Christianese in language, in appearance, and yet we can still be absolutely pursuing our own desires. Christians, professing Christians, religious people broadly can twist the truth and Christ's claims with remarkable moral dexterity. So we're not off the hook if we're trying to honor Christ. I think we're susceptible to a particular kind of faithlessness, and it's putting on an exterior that looks appropriate or righteous while having the wrong heart internally. If we're not careful, we'll dress our sinful selfishness in righteous robes, and we will use Christ's name and Christ's church for our own ends. And this is a key. Throughout Scripture, you'll see that God routinely challenges, exhorts, and condemns religious leaders. You'll see it in the Old Testament. You'll see it in the New. And it's for this reason, the temptation to use God's name and God's people for our own purposes. We want to... We want to engender in ourselves the philosophy that John the Baptist said in John 3.30. His disciples came up and they complained to him. They said, that new guy on the block, Jesus, he's taking away more disciples than you have. And John said, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's really the thought we want to bring to ourselves. It's making much of Christ and little of ourselves and our own personal goals. And friends, it is far, far easier said than done. I want to start with the Apostle Paul because he's a great segue to the Sanhedrin. The Apostle Paul was educated, he told us, under the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most respected of the members of the Sanhedrin and the teachers of Israel. Paul grew up in the religious elite. He would have known the members of the Sanhedrin. He was alive during Jesus' lifetime. And yet he says this in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief or of whom I am foremost or of sinners I'm at the top of the heap. Really two issues there. One, he says, Jesus came to save sinners. That's all of us. That's all of mankind. Jesus came to save sinners. But then he says, he is of the worst kind of sinners. Paul the Apostle says he's of the worst kind of sinners. Now, why does Paul say that? And it's not because the kinds of sins that I think routinely jump to our minds, sins that for most of us are probably pretty easy, perhaps, to put aside. He didn't think of himself that way. He didn't categorize himself as the worst of sinners because he slept around. It wasn't immorality. It wasn't because he did drugs. It wasn't because he sold drugs. It wasn't because he had an abortion. It wasn't because he paid for abortions. It wasn't because he told lies or cheated on his Torah test. It wasn't for the kind of sins or sinfulness that jumped to most of our minds when we think of moral failure. Paul said he was the worst kind of sinner 
because he was a religious person who denied God and persecuted God's people. And that's just absolutely undeniable in the text. Paul is introduced to us, of course, in Acts 7 at the end of that chapter as Saul of Tarsus. And we see him when, when people who are stoning the, the first martyr of the early church, Stephen, when they're stoning him to death, they're laying their robes at the feet of Saul of Tarsus, who gives hearty approval to what's being done to Stephen, who's gazing at Christ in heaven, face like an angel, as those around him, Saul included, appear like wolves, murdering Stephen. Paul was searching out and arresting Christians, men and women, so they could be imprisoned, he confessed as part of his story in Acts 22. So this guy was like a rabid wolf or dog. He wasn't content to stay in Jerusalem or Judea and do this. You remember he took letters from the Sanhedrin to Damascus where God interrupted his plans on the way there. He was just like those in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership that we'll be looking at, a religious elite, a Pharisee with impeccable religious credentials, Philippians 3, he talks about that for himself. But listen to this language from Jesus in Matthew 23. And Matthew 23 is really a key chapter, not only in Matthew's gospel, but in the gospels generally, about Jesus' view of the religious shepherds of his day in Israel. He called them hypocrites, blind guides, serpents, and vipers. He said, you appear outwardly righteous, and catch this, but he said, inwardly lawless. <laughs> now, if you told the Sanhedrin that they were lawless, they, they wouldn't have accepted that for a moment. These are guys who major in the law. They teach the law. They live the law. And they would say, what do you mean? But Jesus says, no, internally you are in fact without God's law. He said this, he said, you neglect the most important elements of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and you focus instead on legalistic minutiae. You remember the memorable image he gave of that was you would strain a gnat out of water to drink, but you would swallow a camel. So though they had memorized the Torah, the law, they didn't live it internally. It was simply robes they put on externally. As religious leaders in Israel, most in the Sanhedrin remained unconverted sinners. They were opposed to God and they were opposed to God's will. They were glad for the perks that life at the top of the religious triangle, if you will, afforded them, but they were unwilling to bow to God. They were unwilling to serve God's people. So we want to remember this. Being religious doesn't change our sinful nature. Being a religious leader doesn't mean we share God's life. It doesn't mean we're converted. It doesn't mean that we share God's love or God's priorities. And in fact, in the day that we live, you've got to be sympathetic to an irreligious world that looks at religious people and religious institutions sideways. Religion has suffered badly when we think of the abuse of women and children, the financial motivation that's behind so many Christian ministries, that it's no wonder the world looks sideways at those who say they're representing God. The religious can excel in faithlessness, as well as any, and we might say better, perhaps, than most. In uh, biblical counseling quarters, there's a Q&A that goes this way. Why do we do the things we do? The answer is because we want the things we want. 
Why did those in the Jewish Sanhedrin reject Jesus and abuse God's people? And we say, well, because they wanted glory and honor for themselves. They wanted glory and honor for themselves. And this is what Jesus gets into again. This is out of Matthew 23. These are verses 5 through 7. He said, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love, so they don't love God, they don't love God's people, they love the place of honor at feasts and in the synagogues. They love being called rabbi by others. Why are they religious leaders? Because they love what they can get out of that setting. Matthew 20 is a parallel passage to that, verses 46 and 47. And there Jesus brings in Old Testament uh, prophet language when he says, they not only love the places of honor, they devour widows' houses. Uh, They abuse the flock of God. And for appearances' sake, they offer long prayers. In John 12, 42 and 43, this is a little different take, but there... Jesus says, excuse me, it's said of the religious leaders, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Why? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And friends, Christians are susceptible to this as anyone, and and this is the trade. Jesus says the Pharisees, the members of the Sanhedrin in his day, they loved the glory that they could get from men. The flip side of that you see in John 12, when we say that I'm afraid of being rejected by others, it's just the opposite sign of that coin. If I seek glory from other people, It's just the flip side of, I fear the rejection of other people. And it all lands you in the same place. When you and I entertain that as a heart motive, I'm doing something so that others will think well of me, or I'm doing or not doing something so others won't reject me. We're acting just like the Pharisees. We're acting just like the Sanhedrin that rejected Jesus. The heart motive, no matter what we're doing on the outside, the heart motive misses the mark. It's sinful. And it means what we're doing is, in fact, not ultimately pleasing to God. These religious leaders could not be faithful to God because they were faithful to themselves. We could paraphrase and flip the Lord's Prayer on its head, their will be done, their kingdom come. Or I could say to myself, my will be done, my kingdom come. So they're motivated by respectful greetings, honor from other people, They had wealth. Remember, the Sadducees primarily ran the temple. They were incredibly wealthy because of that, so they could live a privileged lifestyle. Those were the motives behind the leaders who rejected Jesus and abused his people. And guys, it would be nice to think that was then, this is now. People are different, we're different, the church is different, religious people are different, and of course that would just be make-believe, wouldn't it? When you go to the epistles in the early life of the church, you see exactly the same thing going on. No different in the church of Christ in the early pristine days of the church. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 11. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He started. And yet they think more highly of what they call the super apostles in their midst. These guys were impressive physically. They had oratory skills. In contrast, Paul says, I know I don't speak well, 
It's not because I'm not learned. It's not because I'm not God's apostle. But just on a, a physical appearance level, he says, those guys are impressive in ways I'm not. But this is what he said to the Corinthians. He said, your super apostles are false apostles. They are deceitful workmen. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And, and even more ironic to me, Paul says, if someone slaps you in the face, you bear it gladly. If the false apostles who are abusing you <laughs> slap you in the face, you'll bear with it gladly because you think they're all that. And he says, you've got it upside down and backwards. They're not all that. You're bowing, you're following false shepherds, faithless apostles. You get to Second Peter, you see more of the same thing. And Peter keys in on the motive of the false teachers and false apostles. He said, were part and would be a part of the life of the church going forward. Second Peter 2 verse 3 says, in their greed, they exploit you. It's the same thing the Sanhedrin did. There's greed. What can I get? And I'm exploiting professing Christians, the church of Christ, for what I can get. He says their hearts are trained in greed. He says they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. You can't give what you don't have. 3 John 9, the Apostle John writes this, Diotrephes, he's a leader in a local church, likes to put himself first. Why is he turning away missionaries in Christ's name who are coming well, because he doesn't want competition in the local church. He likes to put himself first. In Jude 12, he says, like Peter, of false prophets and false teachers, they are shepherds feeding themselves. The, the, the epitome, the imagery, the lens is exactly the same thing as Ezekiel 34. It's the same thing the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin practice. Guys, this is the thing. If there's money, power, or prestige to be had, you can bet on, you can bank, you can guarantee there will be abuse. That's as true in religious circles as in any other. It was true in Jesus' day, it was true in the early church, and it's true in our day as well. I am flabbergasted by the super apostles of our own day. Uh, there are at least two pastors, one in the States, I believe one's in Africa, who measure their personal wealth at about $150 million dollars and and yes i say that correctly 150 million dollars there are multitudes of super apostles in the united states today who measure their personal worth in the tens of millions of dollars and i've got to ask myself are they serving their flocks in christ's name or like the sanhedrin are they using god's people in christ's name and again you can add to that clergy priesthood, the abuse, not only of people's finances, but of minors, women, sometimes boys, you name it. So it's certainly possible to dress ourselves in righteous robes and be absolutely filled, as Jesus said, with dead men's bones within. The Sanhedrin was faithless to God's people because they saw them as a means to their own ends, their own desires. It was all about them. And before we pass on to the next one, I want to ask ourselves some probing questions. I hope these are helpful. How do I view God's people? How do I view God's people, Christ's church? If you find that you don't serve in any capacity others in the church of Christ, it's probably because you view it as what you can get or how others can serve you. 
And there are times in life in which we'll do less, not more, and there are stages of life, health issues, emotional issues, in which we may find our service greater or lesser. So take all that into account. But if as a general rule of life, I find that I'm not serving others for their benefit in the church, I probably have an attitude somewhat like Paul's talking about in the Sanhedrin. So are others here for my convenience, or do I choose to prefer others in honor, Romans 12, 10? Uh, from John 13, do I serve others as Jesus commanded? You remember he stripped, he, he took a towel, he took water, he washed his disciples' feet, he took the, the place of the lowest house servant, and he said, if I, your master, do this for you, you should do this for each other. Philippians 2, to me, one of the most powerful passages in the Bible on what Christ's likeness and what Christ-like faithfulness in us looks like. And it's filled with this imagery of service, humility, not grabbing hold of things for ourselves, but willingly laying our lives down for others. So ask ourselves, does that look like us? Or do we resemble the folks who are using God's people, God's church, for their own purposes? Jesus' presence was an inconvenience to the Sanhedrin almost from the beginning of his ministry. And, and look at it from their perspective. They, they want to use the nation for their own ends. Here's a rabbi from Galilee, and Galilee's the wrong side of the track to begin with. And he's not from any of the official schools going on in Israel. He's not under some prominent rabbi. Yet he comes into the temple, he turns over the tables, he wrecks their profit margins for the day. He's drawing people to himself away from the existing leadership structures. He's poor and he's common. He associated with the lowly and with sinners. He was, in fact, everything they despised. Matthew 21 says this. <laughs> These next passages to me are all the more remarkable when you think of the irony, the contradiction that's occurring in these narrative elements. Listen to this from Matthew 21. The, so, after... Palm Sunday, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And it says, The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. So blind people come in, they walk away with sight. Lame people are brought in, and they walk away mobile. And the text says, When the chief priests, this is Caiaphas and Annas, when the chief priests and the scribes saw with their own eyes the wonderful things he did, the children crying out, they were indignant. Now understand, they've seen with their own eyes Jesus giving sight to the blind and giving the lame the ability to walk. They knew the prophets. And those were two of the criteria of the Messiah. Isaiah 35 is one of the key texts on this, that Messiah would give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute, the, the lame would walk. They see it in their eyes, and their response is indignation. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't broach them in the least that this might be the Messiah. Look at Luke, Luke 22. I laugh because these things are so ironic. It is thick. Luke 22 tells us Satan, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, he went away and discussed with the chief priests, Caiaphas and Annas, and the officers, members of the Sanhedrin, how he might betray Jesus to them. They were glad. They agreed to give him money. So he consented, and he looked for an opportunity. Now, guys, 
This is the religious leadership of Israel literally making a deal with the devil. Satan and Judas is on one side, the Sanhedrin is on the other, and they, they shake on it. They say, we can do this together. They reject Jesus, but Satan becomes their business partner. This is the leadership of the Jewish culture and people representing God in Jerusalem. At his arrest, Luke 22, 52, and 53, Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple, he said, this hour, his arrest, and then his trials and his suffering and his crucifixion, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. The power of darkness belongs to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin of Israel. In Matthew 26, verse 59, remember Jesus says, you, you teach the law, but you don't keep it. That verse says, the chief priests and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They're breaking the ninth commandment, false testimony, so they can break the fifth commandment, murder. These are those who teach the law. And can you think of any greater irony than this? This is Matthew 26, starting at verse 63. Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. The high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God. I command you, I exhort you in the name of the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says to him, you've said it. I tell you from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power Coming on the clouds of heaven, that's Daniel 7. Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, that's true. And I'm the one that you'll see from Daniel 7. I receive a kingdom that can never be destroyed. The high priest tears his robes and says, you've uttered blasphemy. And he says to the guys, hey guys, what do you think? What do you think he deserves? He deserves death. They spit in his face and struck him. The high priest requires God the Son speaks the truth in God's name. God the Son tells the truth, and the high priest and the Sanhedrin say, you're lying, the one who cannot lie. The Prince of Life, Jesus, is determined to be worthy only of death. You, you can't make this stuff up. The Sanhedrin was faithless to God, so we know they've been faithless to God's people. They're faithless to God because they had installed themselves as demigods. They were Messiah replacements. They didn't want to let Jesus in on their good thing. And again, I just think it's awfully helpful for us to ask in our place, in our time, what have we done with Jesus? So not, not God's people, not the church, not horizontally, but vertically, what have we done with Jesus? Have we ever come to the point where we've bowed before Christ and said, I recognize I sin. I'm not what I should be. I do things I shouldn't. I don't do things I should. I recognize my deficiency, 1 Timothy 1, Paul's verse, and Jesus, you came to save me, and, and I claim you by faith as my Savior, my Lord, and my God. Think of the language of Thomas, the end of John's gospel. Have we done that for ourselves, or do we play at being religious and moralistic? Do I pray in Jesus' name, or do I use his name in vain? If someone says, they used God's name in vain. We typically think of cussing Jesus as an exclamation, God as an exclamation point, but it certainly goes beyond that. The Old Testament concept of using God's name in vain included, I'm attaching emptiness, vanity to God's name. Christians can do that and often do. So if I say God told me something and he didn't, 
That's Jesus' name in vain. If I say scripture means something that it doesn't mean, I'm using God's name in vain. I need to be very careful about what I attach God's name to. And do I bear true testimony to others of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? And friends, this, I think, is one of the easiest metrics by which we can determine what the motive of my heart is just just generally. If I find that I'm afraid to share the gospel with others, to attach myself to Christ, I'm living like the Sanhedrin in the fear of man to gain glory for myself from others. If we find that's what's going on in us, we need to confess that as sin, and we ask God, Lord, you fill me up with more of the life of Christ so that out of love for you, I can love others in part by simply being ready and willing to share the gospel. Now, we don't have to be obnoxious about this. And guys, for sure, we don't want to work ourselves up in the power of the flesh to share the gospel. We want to say, Lord, show me the times and the opportunities Fill me with your spirit. Give me your word so that I can share the gospel as you give opportunity to. But most Christians I know are terrified to share the gospel. And it's because we've got a heart motive that lives for the honor men can give us. We live in fear of being rejected by others. We need to be aware of that. Any position of authority can be abused. How are we doing in any leadership or shepherding roles we serve in today? And and bring this home to where we live. If you're a husband, do you love your wife? And and before you pat your back or assure yourself you do, she's God's daughter, your wife. She's God's daughter. And, And when God gave you her as a wife, he entrusted her with you so that you would help her become the person God means her to be. Is that how you've seen your wife in your marriage? Do you pray for your wife? You ask God, what can I do to serve my wife? And I don't mean necessarily all the time in ways she wants. That's not always the metric that we aim for. God, how do I best love my wife in Christ's name, sacrificially lay my life down like a good shepherd for my wife? What does that look like? What does that require of me? I think many of us as Christian husbands are too quick to pat ourselves on the back And we're not actually, in fact, loving our wives the way God calls us to in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. Speak to parents on this too. Now, I don't know any parents who would ever do this, but I've heard that some Christian parents raise their children with the hopes their children will make them look good. That is, my children will look like happy little Christians. They'll be dressed right. They'll be able to recite, rip off the Bible verses. They won't make me look bad. They'll make me look good. Now, I know no one I know would ever do that, but some Christian parents, I'm told, have. Well, that's no different than the Sanhedrin. That's me using my children to make me look better. It's the same kind of motivation the Sanhedrin had. Versus, God, you've entrusted me as a parent. You've entrusted me with children to raise them up in the knowledge of you. Is that what we're doing, that we introduce them to Christ knowing that Christ is the best thing they can ever have, the best person they can ever know, that they want to love Christ and they want to love his people. And teachers, employers, politicians, government employees, do we see those career positions as means by which we ultimately are, in fact, serving God? You can have a really demanding, thankless job, and if your motive is to please and honor Christ, you can derive great satisfaction out of that 
because you can have a sense I'm honoring God at my place of employment in that level or place of responsibility. I tell you, even as kids, if you have pets, are you a good shepherd to your pet? Proverbs says that the righteous person cares for their animals. Are you a good shepherd to your pet? This can start early, can't it? Now, guys, uh, I want to move on here, too. And without their knowledge or their permission, I wanted to mention, in contrast to the Sanhedrin, uh, the leadership here at Lion and Lamb Church, at first, the descriptive language that routinely gets used among the elders at Lion and Lamb is, is the term under-shepherds. And the concept comes from 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, where Christ is called the chief shepherd. And the thought is, as elders in the church, we are shepherds under Jesus, and we give account for how we lead his flock, his people, under-shepherds. I think it's a really helpful thought or picture or lens to see the role of serving Christ's body. All the elders in Lion and Lamb are responsible for prayer, personal contact, care for a portion of those who call Lion and Lamb their church home. They all share some form of teaching responsibility. They all lead a small group. They all participate in monthly and sometimes biweekly prayer and planning meetings. That's just a given from the start. I'll mention specifically Kent Vincent serves as our chairman. So Kent's done this for quite a while. Kent basically keeps us going forward. He runs our meetings, and that means basically keeping the main things the main things. Month to month, are we following through with the things we've said we need to be doing? Kent's been expert at that. Especially with the COVID-19 setting, uh, Kent has been hugely helpful to me personally in reminding us of the need to keep personal contact with others in the church because it's easy in this time and these circumstances to lose track. He's, he's also, by the way, doing all that while he runs his law practice. Mark Ediger has done a remarkable job keeping us going. Forward on the building edition, Mark will be glad when this is over. Uh, he's here early. He's often here late. He's making all the calls, all the contracts, contacts with the contractors serving us. He does the same thing the other elders does, and he's also running a demanding inspection business. Uh, Larry Stewart is, is my poster child for, for a godly leadership. Uh, you know, so many people, uh, we, we get into something for what we can get. Larry had to take a significant cut in pay to become <laughs> on staff at Lion Lamb Church. He forfeited all the benefits of his prior job. One of the requirements of serving here full-time is no benefits. I say that tongue-in-cheek. That's what he did. He also, he and I were joking about this a couple weeks ago. I said, you probably thought you'd be giving biblical counseling. Larry got a master's in pastoral counseling. He does some of that. That still happens, but he has become our factotum. He's painting, he's doing the tech stuff, he's doing whatever's needed, and it's not just Larry, it's Trish, his wife, it's his kids. They've been here long, long and frequently cleaning the building, taking care of just numerous things. He also heads up the ministries to our youth and our young adult groups. And Bill Bider, God bless my brother Bill. You know, Bill, again, same, same things the rest of us do, typically leads the way on adult Sunday school. And Bill has kept this up through the years of cancer treatment and cancer challenges his lovely wife Robin had. Or Robin passed into Christ's presence here recently. And Bill's been working right up through that whole thing. 
I say this all to say in contrast to the kind of motivation and leadership you see in the scriptures, the kind of leadership we're warned about, warned against, you see in the Sanhedrin, in contrast to that, God has absolutely blessed lion and lamb with godly shepherds and elders. On top of that, we've got a great group of deacons as well that help keep the wheels practically of this church running. Things like finances, the building, the grounds, the efforts we have in Haiti, helping folks in our church who need just practical help, hands-on help. Russ Barnell, Tom Lindsay, Jeff Powell, and Dan McElroy. It's been an honor. It's, it's actually been a, a pleasure uh, to serve with these guys. And my take is this. What allows these leaders to serve the church well? This is Mike's opinion. And guys, by the way, we know none of us do this perfectly 100% all the time. But it's a true desire to make much of Christ, to put him and his things first, and out of that desire to love and serve those who belong to Christ. Winding down on this, if we're putting off, putting off our old, faithless, self-serving natures, and, and that's a big deal, and we're putting on Christ, if our goal is to bring honor to him, to please him, and to love and serve those he loves, we will find ourselves faithful. We will find ourselves faithful. So check the motives of the heart, not just what we do, but why we do it. Let's pray briefly, and then Larry's going to come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Father God, we thank you so much for being absolutely and fully aware of the depth of our depravity and our need. So fully so that Jesus didn't just die to cover our sins, but we died with Christ. That that old sinful self that would dress itself up in religious garb and practices to make much of itself was condemned there at the cross so that the life of Christ could grow big in us. This body, this mind, Lord, being host to the new life we have in Christ. Would you Help us, Lord, put off old ways, old thoughts, and old motives. Would you help us to embrace Christ more fully? Would you help us to make much of him? Might his life, Lord, be enlarged in us. Out of that, might we display faithfulness to you. And Lord, with that too, we pray for Doxodzo, and I think of Abby Stewart in that frame as well. God, would you continue to help them reach others for Christ and develop leadership? young Christians, teenagers, and young adults, Lord, help them engender in them the life and the motives of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's a little weird being on this side of the camera since I've been on the other side for so long, but... Um, I want to speak for the other elders and the deacons, I think, and just say that I want to say that Mike has been an example of faithfulness to all of us. So Mike's been doing this for 20 years. He's been faithful to this body, this family, for 20 years. And I know uh, we don't always agree uh, amongst ourselves. Would that surprise you? Uh, but Mike is the one that's always challenging us to be better, to do better, uh, whether it's in our teaching, our preaching, our outreach, whatever it is. Mike is kind of the spur that pushes us uh, to do more. And so I just want to appreciate that. So we've been sheltering in place for about a month. 
And I know, like many of you, one of the hardest things has been that we've missed things. So we've missed activities or we've missed people, seeing people. I know for the Stuarts, we have missed some family gatherings. We've missed a graduation. God willing, we'll be able to do that again in August. But that's one of the things that we've missed. And as we come out of this time, there's a sense of anticipation of life returning to normal, of, of getting to see people, of going to, or some of you, it's going to Starbucks and actually going inside. Uh, I don't understand that, but I love you anyway. But there's a sense of anticipation that we're going to get to do things that we have missed doing. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we should have that same sense of anticipation. Actually, we should have a heightened sense of anticipation. Jesus said to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him until he comes again. And so when we take the elements, we're looking forward to that day. We're looking forward to the day when we see the one who bought us, when we see the one who purchased our soul, when we see the one, as Brian taught, who endured the cross on our behalf so that I could be set free. You know, heaven is going to be great. I am looking forward to the meeting Moses and Elijah and having a thousand-year conversation with Spurgeon. I'm looking forward to all that. But the best thing about heaven is going to be that we are going to see Jesus and that I'm going to have a body and I'm going to have a mind that sees him as he is. We're going to see the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, who purchased, our, purchased a people for himself. We're going to see the lion from the tribe of Judah who conquered death, who rose victorious. When you take the elements, think about that. That's, that's what we should be anticipating. I'm not a prophet. I'm not going to tell you when the end is going to come, when Jesus is going to come back. But I am going to tell you that we're a day closer today than we were yesterday. And tomorrow we're going to be another day closer. History is moving forward to that day. So we need to have that sense of anticipation. Guys, what a great, great, great day that's going to be. Can you imagine it? When you, when you die, you wake up in heaven and Jesus is there. There's not going to be anything better. And so I'm going to pray for us. I want you to take the bread. You take a few minutes to pray. Take the bread, and then I'm going to come back up, and we're going to take the cup together. Lord, we thank you so much just for uh, that you purchased a rebellious people. We weren't searching for you. You came looking for us. Um, and then you sacrificed yourself in the worst way imaginable. Uh, you endured the humiliation of the cross. You endured uh, a sham trial. You endured rejection by those you came to save. Uh, and you did it so that you could purchase us. And not only so you could purchase us, but the scripture says so you could present us holy and blameless before God the Father. Uh, we, just, we don't have words for that. And so we just praise you for that. Uh, Fathers, we take these elements. Let us remember that. Let's remember your sacrifice, but more than that, God, let us look forward to the day when we will see you as you are, and we will worship at your feet, uh, when all things will be right, when there won't be sin, there won't be death, there won't be separation, uh, there will be none of that, uh, there will be endless bliss, pleasures forevermore, your word says, in your presence. In your beautiful name we ask it. Amen.
And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As it wouldn't be a Sunday if we didn't have some announcements to wind down on. Sorry. One thing, it's another. Announcements. Uh, building update. Work does continue on on the building. The electricians are here working, putting in the fixtures. They actually hope to be finished up next week. Uh, the HVAC, the heating and cooling, Lord willing, will be finished up next week as well. The driveway is officially open. If you guys are out driving around and you just want to do something that's fun, just drive through the new Lion and Lamb Church concrete driveway. The little things that mean so much. Uh, funding on the building, we're still about $7,000, I think, short of finishing. We would love to finish the building project this month. Uh, Mike's hope is that we can actually have a potluck in, have our letter of occupancy, have a potluck here at May 31st, but we'll see on that. If you can contribute to that, why that would help that get finished up. Uh, probably the biggest thing we say this morning is we are planning on meeting here in person next Sunday, May 10th, for Sunday school and for service. And this is after, I suppose, six, seven weeks, maybe eight. I don't remember how many it's been. I want to emphasize, too, because there's a lack of clarity, frankly, some of it probably intentional on the part of our governor and the official organs of the state, the churches are legally meeting again starting next week. This is not illegal. This is not going against a government, governor's mandate. Churches are included in the groups, which means we are being treated equally under the law constitutionally again starting next Sunday when we're seen as no different than Menards or Dillon's or your local liquor store. So we will meet here in person and let me say a couple things to that. We'll send out information on Breeze this week about all the specifics that we're going to do. You'll also be contacted by your home group leader or one of the elders if you haven't already responded to a query that went out last week, what your hopes are regarding meeting in person, uh, doing live streaming in someone's home, or simply continuing to stay home. And I want to make sure I make this clear. We said this before, you're no better if you're here or if you're away. We want to be absolutely respectful and loving as brothers and sisters in the faith towards each other. For some of us, that means we want to and we're free to meet together. And when we meet here, our occupancy is way down. We think maybe we can seat about 100 in here because we're abiding by the six-foot principle. So we'll, we'll negotiate our seating. There'll be and sanitizer on your way in. We want to be respectful and careful for everyone. So some of us will be here. Some of us won't be because your health or folks you interact with, you see that as a, not a good stewardship decision. That's all fine. Some of us will start meeting here again next week. We'll send a reminder this week, and we'll give you all the specifics then. I tell you also, if you had on your calendar, the Memorial Weekend Campout, that has been canceled, not by us, but by the Park Service. They've canceled all reservations through the month of May. 
we're hoping to have something else in place again, probably closer to the end of the summer. And then unashamedly, unabashedly, I'd recommend that you go to the blog that I'm a part of, Applied Heart. The reason I say that, there are pieces written not only by myself, but by Lee Anderson, my son-in-law, Steve Golden, that speak to things like attitudes of fear, evangelism, things like that in the current climate. Uh, fear is not an attitude of heart Christians should engender other than fear and respect towards God. But short of that, we simply want to live wise and lovingly. And so you'll read pieces on there that are helpful towards that end. So glad we could get together this morning. Glad for those who will be able to share face-to-face here next week. If you're not in that group, God bless you. God bless us all. Continue to keep us and shine his face upon us. And help us be faithful. Just get before the Lord perhaps later today. Lord, search me. Psalm 139 and David. Try me. Try my heart. Show me anything in me that's hurtful so that I can honor you and bless and love others in the ways you mean me to. Okay? God bless us. Help us keep the faith. Till next week. God bless.